0: It's 836, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We start today's program like we start every program with three big things. Quick programming note, we are scheduled to be joined by Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, um, quite a week in Congress, and we'll be talking to the Speaker about a number of different things. Paul is scheduled to join us at 10.15 this morning, a little bit after 11. Uh, My friend and colleague, my pod pal, we sit next to each other, A.M. programming. John McCurry is going to be with us. Today is a special day on Wisconsin's afternoon news. He has been focusing, it's been 15 years since Alexis Patterson disappeared, and John's been doing some tremendous work and some tremendous interviews. Um, He's going to take us back in a time capsule to remind us about what happened and the state of the investigation, and John's going to be in with me a little bit after 11 o'clock this morning to help preview that and, of course, uh, follow the brewers around 9, 10, approximately, your chance to win a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers at Miller Park and to follow the Brewers to St. Louis for a game at the end of September that could, I say could, be meaningful. So that's all coming up. Like I say, we start off today's show like we start off every show. Three big things, things that I think you need to know to talk about at the water cooler or at the gym or at the lunch table or wherever. Big thing number one, your rules on overtime might be about to change. For years and years and years and years, um, federal government workers have had a choice. If they work overtime, they have had a choice between taking the money time and a half or taking compensatory time. So in other words, you just say, you know, I, the, the time off is more important to me than than the money. So federal employees have had this option, again, since 1985. If you work overtime, you could take the dough, and a lot of them choose to take the dough, or you could say, hey, I'd like some more vacation time. So you get um, time and a half, but it's payable, in again, in extra time, vacation time. That has been the law for federal employees. It is not the law for private sector employees. Um, private sector employees are not given the option to take time and a half in the form of time. They have to take money. Yesterday, the House of Representatives passed a a bill which would allow, if employers choose to offer it, employers don't have to offer it, but if employers choose to offer it, private sector employees could exchange overtime pay for compensatory time electing to, again, accrue extra hours off rather than extra pay in in their wallets. And this bill passed largely along party lines. Now, you might say, okay, why would anybody turn down the money? Well, there's lots of people who might turn down the money. Let's say it's a situation where, again, you get maybe you get a little bit of vacation time. You only get two weeks a year, but you'd like to have more time off to spend time with your kids, your family, or whatever. And for whatever reason, that time off, would be more valuable than than the money, so you would have the option of doing that under this proposed law. Employers could not force employees to choose comp time over um, over the, the the pay, but if they chose to offer that option, employees would have the option to take avail take it a uh, take avail- advantage of it. Um, there is law language in the law that prohibits employers from intimidating or threatening or attempting to threaten employees from choosing comp time over pay but some of the people who oppose it say even though there's provisions in the law what's going to happen is you're going to have these employers who are going to force people to take time off instead of money even though that's illegal 414-799-1620 that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line if this law in my opinion is good enough for the federal government, and is good enough. been good enough for the federal government for over 30 years now, I think it is good enough for the private sector. Wouldn't you like to at least have the option, and maybe not at this point in time in your life, but think back to other times in your life, wouldn't you like to have the option to say, hey, you know, I, if I'm going to work overtime, I would, some people are going to want the dough, I get that, but other people are going to say, hey, you know, I would rather have that, that time off. And if I work overtime and this can get me an extra week of vacation or something, I would rather have that vacation. I think this is pro-employee, and I think employees should have the ability to do that. I don't know whether this is going to pass in the Senate or not, but I think this is good public policy. What do you think? 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should employers be able to give employees the option of taking overtime pay or comp time? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 841 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I mean, I think this is pro-employee. I don't understand why this is a partisan issue. Wouldn't you like to have this option? We discuss next. It's 845 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Hillary Clinton is beginning to speak more candidly. More candidly, about her loss last November, and that includes listing several reasons why she failed to beat Donald Trump. Do you agree with her reasoning? Join the debate at Scafidi and Bilstadt, 1235 today. Yeah, a little bit later on the program, we'll be talking about that. Uh, Hillary Clinton now says that she wants to be part of the resistance. Wonderful. I would think that you would want to be part of doing whatever it takes to make America succeed, but... That's not where Hillary Clinton is coming from. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on in the show. Right now, big thing number one, the House of, Rep- the House of Representatives getting ready to – they've just yesterday passed a, a law which would allow employees the option, if offered by an employer, the option of instead of getting time and a half, if you work overtime, you could take compensatory time. I do not for the life of me understand why you have so many Democrats that are opposing this. This to me seems like an extremely worker-friendly law because, again, for, for higher-paid workers or workers that have been in the job for a long period of time, a lot of times they, they get a ton of vacation. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, if I can relate this personally, I mean, I've been here for going on 20 years. Uh, the folks at Scripps give me almost more vacation than, than I can can use, almost more paid time off because you, you accumulate that. So if I were in a situation where candidly they were offering me time off or you know time and a half that I'm I'm not because I'm a contract employee, for me it wouldn't make any sense to take more time off because I because I've been here for twenty years, I get a lot. Um, but I'm trying to imagine a situation where you have a small company um, and you have typically employees who maybe they're new or maybe they're lower paid employees or maybe they're employees who just you know don't accumulate time off to begin with this I think is a great thing to give them the option of of doing that because I can easily see a situation where like I say maybe you get a week of vacation and the time the extra time is more important let's start with Dave on the south side Dave good morning you're at 620 WTMJ
1: yeah, Jeff. I and in smaller companies, I don't think that'll work because they they don't want you to have the time off because they only have a certain number of employees. But yet, the time and a half, there'll be pressure to take the comp time so that the company don't have to pay out the money, Jeff. If they have fifty employees or less, or somehow one hundred employees or less, that there's going to be a lot of pressure on. That.
0: Well, well, I guess. Well, but the the point is, I guess Dave, I'm, I'm not sure the point you're trying to make that the under the law first of all, under the law, employers don't have to offer this. I mean, but if an employer does, cho- so there, there will be companies that maybe that they, they can't have, maybe there's a number of small employees, if that's your point, and they're not being able to take folks and they, they can't have people being gone for longer periods of time. They don't have to offer this. There's nothing in the law that makes it mandatory, but it does allow them as a benefit to offer it to employees. And I guess my if you offer it to since you don't have to offer it in the first place i don't understand why people would argue that they're going to be pressured to choose one thing or another if you don't have if you if it's going to be an issue then you're not going to offer it this option in the first place but why shouldn't the law allow companies to offer the option and i would imagine maybe there's a lot of small employers who candidly would would rather would rather have the time off as opposed to you know having the having to pay the, the time and a half four one four seven nine nine one six twenty that's the accurate mortgage uh, talk and toll, uh, toll that it's accurate mortgage talk and text line and and again this this has been how the federal government operates and has operated since nineteen eighty five all this bill does is extend to the private sector and gives private sector employers and employees the same options federal employees have. And I guess if it works for the federal government or it's not creating huge problems, why shouldn't you have the same option if you're an employer or you're an employee in the private sector? James in Milwaukee. James, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello.
1: Good morning. Good
0: morning. Good
2: morning. Yes, I work for the city of Milwaukee, and we used to have comp
3: time option, and they took that away from us. Now we have to get the money. Why,
0: do you, why did they do that? Do
3: you know? I don't know. Okay. Did
0: you... Uh, did you I liked it. did you like it Yes. yeah <laughs> right well I mean see some people James would listen to us and they'd say well why would you take vacation time instead of taking the money everybody would take the money but but they va- no, no, no yeah
3: no see
2: because you get that extra time off sometime when you need it yeah
0: yeah no i I, I agree I think it was a gr- I mean thanks to I think it was a great I think again it's an employee friendly sort of thing it gives you the option to to do that, and again, I'm, I'm getting a number of, uh, of emails from people saying this is going to be a huge problem for small businesses, particularly like, for example, I got one, those with seasonality. But but the law doesn't require employers to offer this. See, so if you're an employer and you don't want to offer this option, you don't have to offer the option. But if you're an employer and you think, hey, this would work for us, you could now you can't legally offer the option. This would allow employers to offer offer the option of, again, time and a half, and it would allow employees to choose it if they want. And again, if it's good enough for federal employees, shouldn't it be good enough, at least in theory, for people who work in the private sector? It's 851. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 854. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Fifteen years ago this very morning, seven-year-old Alexis Patterson headed out the door for a short walk to school. She never arrived, and she hasn't been seen or heard from since... On this sad anniversary, don't miss today's Wisconsin's Afternoon News as our John McCure spends the entire show speaking with family, friends, and law enforcement about what may have happened and the odds that this mystery will ever truly get solved. Do not miss a minute of this special. It's going to be must-listen to radio. It begins at 3 o'clock today only on 620 WTMJ. Big thing number two, the pre-existing condition conundrum. Uh, President Trump, and we'll talk about this with House Speaker Paul Ryan in about an hour and 15 minutes, President Trump very much wants some form of health care reform passed. Everybody knows the story. Um, There was a a bill that died in the House of Representatives when a bunch of conservative members, the so-called Freedom Caucus, bailed on this and said that they would not vote for it because they believed it retained too too many aspects of Obamacare. So now there, there's a new bill that's in the works. And the problem with this is, in an effort to mollify and, to, you, you're going to get no democratic votes to begin with. So that means that Republicans can lose 22 votes and still get it passed. In an effort to satisfy the more conservative members of the Freedom caucus, they have made changes. The problem is the changes are causing moderate Republicans to say, no, we're not going to support it, and it is very much up in the air as to whether they have the votes or not. The sticking point is one thing. It is pre-existing condition. What happens when somebody does not have insurance and is diagnosed with an an illness, ranging from diabetes to heart disease to cancer or whatever? How do they get insurance coverage? now in some respects you have situations where the person is insured for all their life and suddenly they lose their job and then within 6 months they're they're diagnosed with uh, again a, a terminal illness you know liver cancer or whatever and the insurance essentially becomes unaffordable should they be punished because they lost the job well i think most people would say no the problem though with preexisting condition is what about the person who has made the decision their entire life to go without insurance. I'd rather spend the money on other stuff, so I'm not going to be covered. And then all of a sudden they get very, very sick, and they're looking at half a million dollars in insurance coverage or whatever, and then they decide, well, now I want insurance. Well, the insurance market crumbles. It'll crumble if it's only sick people that participate, because the whole idea of insurance is you spread the risk out. You have healthy people who aren't collecting the insurance but but pay into the system in knowledge that one day they might need it um and that those premiums are used to help off- offset the costs for that the people who are very sick so you have this whole issue with pre-existing conditions in Wisconsin before obamacare we actually did this pretty well because we had these separate high risk pools that were there they were very actually very extreme they were extremely affordable and people there were more options Actually, the Wisconsin model, I think, worked pretty well. Now, under Obamacare, you don't have to worry about pre-existing conditions because if you don't have insurance and you get diagnosed with some catastrophic illness, you can still get insurance. You can still sign up. Now, you might have to wait a few months, but you can still sign up and you pay the same premium as if some healthy person would. That is one of the things which is causing Obamacare to crater. So, at the same time, though... From a political perspective, and you had this play out the other day with, uh, like, for example, Jimmy Kimmel who's announcing that you know his, his newborn child has a heart problem, and so the whole idea being, hey, what, what happens if, if my kid couldn't get coverage? And it's a very, very legitimate point. It is a very difficult question. The proposal that they're looking at now would essentially allow the states to create their own sort of high-risk pools. It worked in Wisconsin, but it hasn't worked in other states. So when you hear health care reform and you're wondering what the hang up is, it's pre-existing condition coverage or lack thereof. That's the driving force and how they're going to resolve it. I'm not exactly sure. We will talk to Speaker Paul Ryan about that. Coming up in just a couple minutes, our follow the brewers giveaway and big thing number three, get ready to pay more at the pump. Maybe it's 859. I think this is going to be Wagner's rule of life about number 14 and a half. Don't. Rob people in Tennessee. One of my favorite stories of the day. Um, woman is at home. A couple weeks ago on a Saturday night, uh, there's a knock on her door. She goes to answer the knock, and there's a, a woman that is standing there with a flyer about a lost dog. You know, And so she opens the door. As soon as she opens the door, this guy with a mask, who is standing next to the person with the flyer, pushes his way into his into the house and tries to pull her outside. She's not going. She's resisting. So when that fails, he pushes her inside and screams, this is a robbery. Well, what he doesn't know is the lady's got a baseball bat right next to the door. And the lady grabs the baseball bat and starts swinging like Ryan Braun. And apparently, as she starts whacking at the guy, his mask comes off, and she immediately recognizes him as a guy named Joe Sotelo, a longtime family friend. All right. <laughs> Okay, if if you're a longtime family friend, your idea is you're gonna rob this. Hey, we have a winner in today's Follow the Brewers contest is Lois from West Allis. Lois from West Dallas wins a four pack of tickets to see the Brewers at Miller Park and is automatically qualified for our weekly grand prize drawing. Congratulations. More opportunities to win uh tomorrow about this same time. So in any event, you have the situation, they're struggling. She's now pulled off the guy's mask, she recognizes him as a family friend. He's apparently got a gun in his waistband. She's got the baseball bat. And in this particular case, a baseball bat in hand trumps a gun in the waistband, and she just starts wailing on him with the baseball bat. I have seen the photograph of this guy, and, well, if you're going to get into a tussle with a woman with a baseball bat, um, you are going to lose. And his face looks like it would look if you kind of got whacked upside the head multiple times. Okay, so it gets better. So she grabs the baseball bat from behind the door, and in what police, especially in Tennessee, are describing as self-defense, she <laughs> of course, you know she just goes to wailing on this guy. Apparently, there's two 18-year-old females, other women that are in the house, and they see this going on, and they then start wailing on the guy as well. So you've got the woman with the baseball bat who's going upside his head. You've got the two other women that are kicking on him. He now starts to bail, gets outside the house onto the front lawn when they then start whacking on him again. Okay, well, it turns out, remember at the start of this, the, the reason the lady opened the door in the first place is there was a woman holding a um, flyer for a lost dog. All right, well, the woman with the flyer for the lost dog turns out to be the would-be robber's girlfriend. Well, proving there is no honor among thieves or that their relationship is on rocky ground, once the girlfriend who is the getaway car driver, once she sees that this robbery is not going well, <laughs> she does what any devoted girlfriend would do. She gets in the car and takes off. <laughs> so she's she leaves the boyfriend on the front lawn getting wailed on by the lady with the baseball bat and the two others, and she just drives straight into the night. Um, doesn't pass go, doesn't collect $200. Um, he has now been arrested for aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, He was taken to the local um, hospital um, and and then sent to the the jail. Uh, The victim was apparently a foot shorter and 100 pounds lighter than the suspect. But in this case, the great equalizer was she had a baseball bat and knew how to use it. Bottom line is, I don't know, um, there is this concept of self-defense and Maybe maybe that's another that gives new meaning to the whole concept of Louisville Slugger. Just saying, one of my favorite stories of the day. Coming up next, it's big thing number three. Are you willing to pay more at the pump for your gas? Nine seventeen, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Um, there continues to be a, a rift, and I, I think I, I think that's the best way to describe it—a a rift. This isn't—if you read some of the media accounts, that they, they overplay it. Perhaps as this dramatic fracture, I, I think it's more like a rift um, between some Republicans in the Assembly and the Governor over how road improvements should be paid for. We all understand, I think, that quality of roads are important. Um, You need money to maintain the roads. You also need money to build new roads or do the different projects that we have. Of course, you've got the zoo interchange project around here. You've got um, the expansion plans for I-94 from the Milwaukee County line down to the state line. You've got what is currently in limbo now, the plans to expand the freeway between the Marquette and the Zoo Interchange, all those different things. There's lots of different projects out in Madison. There's projects all over the state, and you need quality roads. The question becomes, how do you pay for this? What Governor Walker has been talking about doing is transferring money from the general budget, where he believes that there are surpluses, and using some of that money to, again, improve – improve the roads. That's his solution. You have at least some Republicans in the assembly, including some in leadership, who have different ideas. They they don't want to transfer money. They believe that we need to increase taxes. And the latest proposal that is floating around would do precisely that. Here's the idea. Right now, the state's gasoline tax is, is 33 cents a gallon. Um, it has been... It used to be indexed, so it would go up automatically with inflation, which allowed politicians not to take tough votes. It was like this automatic increase, so they didn't have to vote on increasing our taxes. That was changed a number of years ago, and so now it's frozen at 30 – let's round up. It's 33 cents a gallon. Um, It has been frozen there for a number of years. One of the options on the table was increasing the gas tax. And Governor Walker has said all along that that is a non-starter. So there's a new plan that's being floated, and here's what it would do. First of all, it would reduce the gasoline tax, the per gallon gasoline tax, by somewhere between four and five cents. So you might say, well, Jeff, that that's great. Who who could be opposed to increase it, to decreasing the gas tax? That is that's super. But then you might also ask the question. Well, wait a second, if we need money for the roads and there's supposedly not enough money, how how can we decrease the gas tax? Well, because the proposal that is being floated, would it would decrease the gas tax. So let's say it would take it from $0.33 cents to $0.29 cents a gallon. But, 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 and here is the big but, it would also apply the state's 5% sales tax to gasoline now when you buy goods and services you you when you buy you you pay a sales tax the state charges a 5% tax you do not pay that sales tax on gasoline the gasoline tax is the tax in and of itself so what the republicans are doing is at least in this proposal it says okay let us let's Impose will reduce the gas tax by four cents or maybe five cents, but we're going to impose the five percent sales tax on gasoline. Um, what would happen now is at, okay at at two dollars and twenty two cents a gallon. Um, the five imposing the sales tax to gasoline would probably add ten cents a gallon to the cost of gasoline. If if gasoline goes up in price like it probably will since you're charging five percent of the cost the amount of taxes that you pay will go up dramatically as well so the net effect of this is probably best case scenario it will increase the tax whether you call it a sales tax or whether you call it the gas tax it, it will increase the tax you pay best case scenario probably by at least a nickel but. If gasoline, which is at pretty much historic lows right now, like $2.22 an hour, a dollar, if it goes up an extra dollar, well, you're going to be paying, again, a lot more. So the effect of this proposal, in my opinion, is probably as a practical matter going to be raising the tax ultimately. And again, whether you call it a sales tax or you call it a gas tax, it doesn't matter. It's taxes that you are paying out of your pocket. By applying a 5% sales tax to gasoline you will be probably increasing people's prices at the pump by at least a nickel, but maybe a dime, maybe more than that. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is a, in my opinion, this is a non-starter. And again, Republican, see, I don't care how you do it. Um, but calling it a sales tax as opposed to the gas tax and saying, well, we're going to decrease the gas tax, but at the same time impose a a new tax on gasoline, to me that is just a shell game. And I think you're too smart not to realize that. The effect of this is really to increase the the price we pay per gallon for gasoline to increase the taxes by a nickel or a dime a gallon. What's more, by imposing a 5% sales tax on gasoline – what you do is you guarantee that it is automatically going to increase as the price of gas increases. This is regressive. Republicans did not get sent to Madison with overwhelming majorities to raise taxes. I think it is a complete and total non starter nine one six twenty. what do you think? That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. 925, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's Wednesday, and that means it's your chance to play lawmaker for a day. It's and Bilstadt open the lines for There Ought to Be a Law, 207 this afternoon. Now, in in fairness, there's more to this gas tax proposal. It's part of a larger plan that while it would increase gas taxes um, by ultimately $0.05, $0.10 a gallon, it would also be coupled with repealing the minimum markup law on gasoline, which may, and I say may, reduce the price we pay. But at the same time, the reality is, short-term and probably long-term, this would be a substantial increase in the gas tax. I think it's a non-starter. David in Madison. David, you're on 620 WTMJ.
1: Thanks for taking my call, Jeff. Uh, I I agree with you. I think it's a non-starter. What I think is more frustrating is if the Republicans weren't sent there
4: to do that
1: in Madison, if they're going to raise the taxes, just come out and say, Hey, we got to raise the taxes because we need to pay for the roads. Don't play these games. I think that's why people get frustrated. But I'd like to understand why is there opposition to Governor Walker's plan of taking money out of the general fund? That seems logical, yeah. just on the surface. If there's money there, use that money that you already have.
0: Yeah, well, I see. I agree with you, David. Now the argument would be that that that's a temporary sort of thing. That that the need for road improvements is going to be constant and occurring. And you know, right now we might be doing well, and there might be doing extra, mo- and there might be extra money. But what ha- what happens in years where there's not extra money? But at least at least short term, I'm with you. I think that that's I think that that's a good solution, and th- that at least allows you to work your way through the present problems. I mean, I I think people are too smart. i people are going to understand that if the cost per gap – by. If, if Republicans think that by imposing the 5% sales tax that people aren't going to realize that they're paying a lot more, I think the public, I mean, the public is smarter than that, David.
1: Yeah, it's ridiculous. And and again, that's not why right. conservatives are sent to either Madison or on a bigger issue to Washington, D.C. That's not why they were voted there. They're not there to play those games.
0: No, they're, th- thanks for the call. And, and again, I understand you have to have good roads. I get that. And I'm not against a sustainable formula, but, I mean, here's the thing. It's like when we had the gas tax that was indexed. It kept going up and up and up, and the politicians got out. They were essentially able to raise our taxes without taking tough votes. That's not the case now. If you do something like this, you are doing exactly the same thing. You pretty much guarantee that the tax on gasoline is going to go up because it's going to go up, um, again, as the price of gas goes up. If somebody was sending a text saying, well, your math is wrong, it would actually be you know, a 13% increase. Well, what happens is, yes, the 5% tax would be generate X amount of dollars. It would be offset, though, by reducing the gasoline tax that you pay by 4 or $0.05. Cents. But the net effect is you would be paying more in taxes. And as the price of gasoline goes up, and, and candidly, I, I think – most of us would recognize that I don't know how long gas is going to stay around $2.20 a gallon, and it might even get a little bit lower in the summer, and that, that's great. But long term, you know, gasoline prices are undoubtedly going to go up as opposed to going down. I think it's much more likely moving forward that they're going to be paying more than $2.20 a gallon than it is that we'll be paying less than that. So that means that as prices go up, what we're going to be doing is continuing without having to vote on this. We are going to continue to see the taxes go up and up and up. And that is not why Republicans got sent to Madison. And I think Republicans need to recognize that. Governor Walker gets it. Assembly Republicans need to understand that too. Because, again, when everybody's running for re-election 18 months from now or whatever, do you really want to see one ad after another talking about how The cost of gasoline tax has gone up thanks to the Republicans, and you know that is precisely what is going to happen. It is 934, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I am so glad to have you with us. A recent player fan incident has Major League Baseball looking for ways to combat radically charged, racially charged interactions Yeah, this went on in Boston. Just how harsh should penalties get? Greg Matzik opens the discussion this evening, Sports Central at 6.07. All right. All right. PG-13 warning. PG-13 warning. Um, I'm going to try to cover this topic as delicately as possible, but there is definitely an adult concept contained herein, so if you're driving around the car and you have the little pictures with big ears, uh, just come on back in ten minutes. <laughs> PG thirteen related warning. Okay, all right, that's it. All right, here is the story. Stephen Colbert is the the David Letterman replacement. He's on CBS's late night show. He he came to he came to CBS after doing the, the Comedy Central thing with the Colbert Report. Right, that was it. Colbert Report, where he portrayed a A conservative blowhard. Ha, ha, ha. We get to make fun of conservatives. So now he's Stephen Colbert. His show has been, had been, up until recently, failing miserably. Um, It has had a resurgence because after President Trump got elected, Colbert decided that that the program was essentially going to be geared to everybody suffering from Trump derangement syndrome and that on a nightly basis – that was what that's what the show is pretty much, roasting roasting President Trump. And at least temporarily, he's found a bit of an audience. Um, like I say, the show was in second place; it was just sucking fumes since he took over. But because at least for the last thirteen weeks, he because again, it's this Trump derangement syndrome, and it's all Trump, and Trump's awful, and we're going to mock him. Um, it's been the number one talk show on late night TV for thirteen weeks running. So he has found a, a formula which, at least in the short term, has been working for him. Now, over the weekend, um, maybe you're aware of this, uh, President Trump um, walked off an interview, uh, or at least cut short an interview that he was giving with uh, the CBS News' host, Face the Nation, where um, the guy's name is John Dickerson, and they were... They were asking Trump about questions about the Russian wiretapping and things like that, and he just ended the interview. All right, so that's that's the background of this. So Monday night, Colbert, as part of his monologue, comes out and he starts uh, again verbally attacking Donald Trump. And it, the, the premise of this is these these are things that John Dickerson would have liked to have said to President Trump when Trump cut the interview short, and the the whole thing it was. It was profanity laced, and, and the CBS. I mean, so they're they're beeping out things. So it, it's it's profanity laced. But here's <clears throat> part of the thing that got him in such trouble, and I'm going to try to clean this up for the radio. He says, "Sir, and this is a direct. This is directed to to Trump. Sir, you attract more skinheads than free rogan. You have more people marching against you than cancer." You talk like a sign language gorilla that got hit in the head. In fact, the only thing your mouth is good for, PG-13 related warning, PG-13 related warning, in fact, the only thing your mouth is good for is being Vladimir Putin's and then it is a reference to oral sex. (laughs) That's the best way I can put it. The only thing your mouth is good for is being Vladimir Putin's, again, a refer- a very crude reference to oral sex. Now, this is on CBS. All right, well, all right, th- this has now set off a-, a firestorm. Now, first of all, he interestingly, Colbert is getting a lot of criticism from, from the left because th- this reference to oral sex is considered to be homophobic. So, I mean, he's getting a lot of backlash for that. But he's also... Getting a lot of backlash from everybody else saying, um, this is, this crosses the line. I mean this crosses the line and there's no way that CBS should allow this to continue. Um I'm I'm look, it's just a firestorm on social media. Time for him to go total trash. I will boycott um advertisers. I will never fill I, another one I will never tune in because of his hate-filled attitude towards the president. Um I don't know if it was homophobic, but the comment was very inappropriate and not funny enough to worth be worth the risk etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Now here is the reality of this. If I said something like this on the radio um, and reference to fill-in-the-blank, any any pair of politicians you might imagine. I don't know if I would have been fired, but I wouldn't have been back on the radio the next day. Um, if a conservative commentator, if a Rush Limbaugh said something like this, there would have been advertiser boycotts, there would have been incredible pressure, take them off the air. So now the question is, what, if anything should CBS do to Stephen Colbert who has found a winning ratings formula at least in the short term by again just going after Trump on a nightly basis is this something that you let the market take care of or is this something where the network should come in and say hey look we we've got standards we really do have standards and we understand that you know politics isn't beanbag and you get political discourse but you know what you know talking about the president of the united states um an oral sex with Vladimir Putin, that crosses any line of decency. Should Colbert be suspended? Should Colbert be fired? Or do you just let the marketplace take over? And if this is what some people want, just let them, let them have it. 414-799-1620, that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Like I say, I have no doubt that this. if this was a conservative commentator on radio or TV who said something like this, They would not be on the air the next day. What should CBS do with Colbert? It's 941, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I'll tell you what I think should happen, and we'll discuss next. Stick around. It's 945, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. On the 15th anniversary of her disappearance, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark says he knows what happened to Alexis Patterson. John McCure shares his exclusive interview with David Clark beginning at 3 o'clock on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Mike in Bayview. Mike, good morning. You're in 620 WTMJ. Mike.
2: Hey, Paul. Uh, sorry, can you hear sure. me? Yeah, sorry. go ahead. Okay. Yeah, uh, I think it's absolutely disgusting, and this isn't an HBO or Showtime. And no, this is
0: CBS. Late, this is 1030 at night. This is CBS, yes.
2: <laughs> right, and, and I know that, you know, it's not something, you know, like a children's program or anything, but you can clearly see what the guy is saying even though they bleep it out and i've just noticed i mean it would be crude if it, no matter who the target is right uh, whether you like the person or not or you're lampooning him or making fun it's just disgusting and and for for you know i was even shocked by it and i uh, <laughs> i spent some time you know in some factories yeah. and then oh yeah you know, some, some some rougher areas
0: well i mean and, and i get i guess mike i guess i'm just stunned by the double standard because like i was saying if 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 you had a conservative commentator who said anything like that There would be such outrage, and that person, I don't know if they'd be fired, but they wouldn't be on the air the next day. CBS apparently decides that this is kind of no big deal because they're so into the Trump derangement syndrome that you can say anything you want and that there's no standards that apply.
2: Right, and I don't watch a lot of late-night television, but when I do, I turn on uh, Seth Meyers once in a while if I'm up maybe a little bit later. I mean, they're re- they really devote a lot of time to slamming the guy, and again, right. I, think it kinda, I think it's just kind of. I think it's going to
0: backfire. Um, so, thank, well, I think so. I mean, th- th- thank I, thanks for call. No, I. I mean, for, first of all, here here is here is what should happen. He should be suspended. I, I mean, there it, it is a it is a my now part of the problem is see, unlike for example, what I do, I, I we're we're live. There's, there's a seven second delay or something, but but we're live. If I decide to go off on some. Homophobic, obscene rant. Um, management, other than my producer Hondo, who also has access to the dump button, there, there, there's nothing you can really do unless somebody's going to run in here. But, but this, this wasn't live. This was Colbert. They taped these things. So CBS, you know, knew that this was coming. They bleeped out some of the profanity, but they allowed the content to go on. So this was clearly done with the embrace and the approval of, of the network that didn't think that there was anything wrong with this, which to me tells you everything you need to know about where CBS is on this. I appreciate as somebody who makes his living under the umbrella of the First Amendment, I get that there's a wide range of things that you, you should say. But this is broadcast this is broadcast TV for goodness sakes, and you have this guy going off on this this rant the only reason it's getting as much attention is isn't that he said these terrible things about the president. But also, again, there's some people on the left that think this was homophobic um, uh, as well to attack the president, you know, using the oral sex references and things like that. I, I mean, I'll let other people decide about that. But at the same time, that the fact that CBS airs this and allows it to be aired says that when it comes to President Trump, there are apparently no standards at all anymore, and the fact that CBS continues to, again, allow him to do the show without reprimand and without any consequences demonstrates to me pretty clearly, you know, where where we are right now. Do I think he should be fired? I don't know. Do I think that there should be some discipline? Yeah, because like I say, um, pretty much you flip this around, and if somebody, if you had a commentator, if you had somebody doing this um, fill in the blanks. Instead of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, if this was Barack Obama and, I don't know, who, whoever, and there was a similar sort of reference, that person, whoever said that, would not be back on TV again. Lisa in Mequon. Lisa, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning.
5: Hi there, Jeff. Hi. Um, I believe that um, uh, this is just locker room talk, as the president stated when he was caught on a live mic um, with Billy Bush on the mm-hmm. bus, it's the same standard, Jeff. Well,
0: no, it's he, not the he, same standard. The difference is he was caught um, unaware that he was being recorded. Okay, this is a guy who's doing this as part of his show on CBS.
5: Okay, insert the name Trump instead of Colbert. Trump does it as part of his show, and I. But,
0: but no, but Trump. No, but it wasn't part list. of a show, Lisa. It wasn't part of a show. It was in something that. He didn't realize he had a hot mic. It wasn't live television. Okay, please, this was live. So do you think the there place. should be no standards? I mean, do you think that I should be able, are we for example...
5: talking about the president or are we talking about Colbert? We're talking There's about no Colbert. Standards. I know that. I'm I'm being facetious. I understand. Um, and I get
0: it, see, Lisa, I understand the Trump haters out there. Oh, you should be able to say anything you want. We don't need any sort of standards at all. Well, I, I'm sorry, Lisa. Um, you, you've got to... I think at some point in time, you need to stand up and say, all right, maybe there are certain limits that are out there i just think that this is this amazing double standard yes i understand that the president you know and was caught saying things that are crude i'm not going to defend that but that's different than going on television and saying things like this and again i mean my question would be if it were barack obama and the same you had some conservative commentator who would say hey barack obama is nothing but a, a you know, whatever for Vladimir Putin, you know, I mean, the, the outrage would be tremendous. Oh, this is racist. This is homophobic. This is just terrible. The guy's got to be fired. Advertisers would be running. You know, and I actually I think that most networks would not have allowed this to go on. I'm just saying that there has to be certain standards that are out there. And I find it to be appalling that CBS would allow this number one to air. And they did allow it to air because they, they could have they could have. They could have gotten rid of the monologue. They could have, uh, again, put another show on. They decided that they were going to allow this to air. So that obviously tells me where CBS's standards are, number one. And number two, it tells me a lot about Colbert. So I understand that right now, bashing on Donald Trump, yeah, you can say whatever you want about him. Well, all right. All right, have we really come to that point where we have no standards at all anymore when it comes to the airwaves or broadcast television or whatever? I don't know how this thing is going to play out. Will advertisers bail on him like advertisers bailed on Bill O'Reilly? Is this different from allegations of, uh, again, sexual harassment? Okay, maybe it's not apples and oranges, but will people be upset by this? I, I don't know. Will it hurt Colbert? I don't know. But I think it says as much about CBS as it does about Colbert, that they're apparently not willing to do anything at all. Um, let's see, looking at our my emails, Dennis says, Uh, The world won't miss him if he's gone. Well, I don't know that he's going to be gone. Uh, Leah writes, nobody should be surprised. Um, CBS kept Letterman on after many of his comments. Yeah, CBS probably just cares about the ratings um, so much for standards. Maybe the American public can speak differently. But again, um, the, the Bash Trump stuff is really hot right now. Whether it will continue to be... Three months from now, six months from now, um, I don't know. But CBS has definitely made its bed, and they're going to lie in it, with Stephen Colbert. It's 9.53, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. 9.55, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. One final thought about this whole Stephen Colbert thing. If, if these if these are the new rules, it's just fine. Then just, just tell me that and let us all play by this. If there are now... No standards about what you can say about anybody on broadcast television or on radio. That That's fine. Just, just give me that memo, but then don't complain the next time some conservative commentator says something that people find to be offensive or misogynistic or homophobic or just crossing the lines of good taste. Just don't complain about that. But you know that's not what the standards are nowadays. It is the double standard that I find offensive. And if we want to say, okay, you can now say anything you want and the rules about broadcast decency don't apply anymore and it's just going to be the wild, wild west. And if you don't like a particular politician, well, okay, the end justifies the means. If if that's if that's the rules, okay, fine, J- just tell me, and then just don't complain, you know, the next time you hear some commentator. My goodness, we are now at a point in America where you can't even have conservatives be allowed to go onto college campuses and speak because you've got the deranged um, folks that are out there trying to shut that down. So, again, if if this is the idea that, you know, if if anything goes and there aren't any standards, just fine, give me the memo, and then... You know, don't complain if you you don't like what you hear, whether it's on the right or whether it's on the left. Uh, we're going to have Paul Ryan coming up in about fifteen minutes. A lot of stuff to talk about with him, including where healthcare is going. Uh, before that, there's, again, the world the world has gone mad when it comes to certain things. The um the the federal government has this new this real ID law. For example, um, if you're getting a new driver's license, you will notice that the new driver's licenses don't look like the old driver's licenses look like. They've got more security things that are built in. And ultimately, in order to, once this is fully put into effect, these real ID rules, in order to use your your driver's license as identification, say at airports, at some point in time, you're going to need the new version. You're going to need this real ID version, right? So. Um, I travel with a passport instead, but I have one of the old licenses. But when my new license comes up, I'm going to have to get the the real ID thing. Well, okay, in New Mexico, they're implementing this same thing. They're doing the same thing that they are in Wisconsin. And it has created a crisis because apparently there are a lot of people in New Mexico, including people who might not be in the country legally, Who have just taken it upon themselves to change their names. They call themselves whatever they want. (laughs) You know, so, you know, if, if my producer's name is Hondo Smith and he doesn't like Hondo Smith, he's, he's, you know, gotten identification documents calling him, you know, Bill Jones. And so now you have all these people who have changed their names. And so now under these real ID rules, you have to, You have to go surprise follow surprise. You've got to use your real name. And so now there's this huge crisis because apparently like the DMVs and stuff are being overwhelmed by people who now need to show identification, who've gotten licenses or whatever under assumed names or altered names or whatever, and they haven't legally changed their names. So now they either have to go back to using their real name or they have to change their real name legally to whatever the new name is that they want to call themselves, and it's being presented as this huge crisis. Well, I, again, excuse me, but, I mean, your name is your name, and I don't think that for identification purposes, you should just get to call yourself whatever you want. If you want to do a radio talk show and you want to have uh, an alias or different name because the name you, your real name doesn't sound good to say on the radio, okay, that's that's fine. But for identification purposes, your real name is your real name. And having to get official documentations under uh, documentation under your real name doesn't seem to me to be unreasonable. It's ten oh nine, Jeff. Wagon. glad to have you with us. Um, she's back, ready or not. Hillary Clinton is coming out of the woods, and she's decided that uh, she wants to be, as she describes herself. Part of the resistance, hmm. the resistance, which I think is an interesting phrase, because I don't know about you, but I want to see the country succeed. I want to see presidents succeed. Part of the resistance, anything, um, anything that we can do to stop Donald Trump, we have to do that. And that appears to be her attitude. So she comes out, she does an interview with uh, CNN um, where she decides that she is going to critique the Trump administration. Now, this is, of course, from the woman who lost. This is a woman who did took what almost everybody, Republicans and Democrats, believed was a race that you could not lose, and she ended up losing this. Um, she, of course, is not accepting the defeat very well. She says that you know she's confident that if the election were held on October 27th, She would be the president. Unfortunately, the election was held in early November. Um, She doesn't like the way President Trump is handling foreign policy. She doesn't like the fact that, you know, he hasn't been able to get health care reform through there. Um, She's decided that, um, again, she uh, doesn't like pretty much anything she's doing. So now she says, I'm back to being an active citizen and part of the resistance. Well, okay, Mrs. Clinton, here's the bottom line. Voters had a chance to choose whether they wanted you to be the leader of the free world or not. And the truth is, they said no. They said no in what I'm sure was a surprise to you. So maybe what you should do is take on the role that other losing candidates have taken. And as opposed to being part of the resistance, maybe be part of the loyal opposition and work to trying to make at trying to make positive changes the as opposed to trying to resist everything that the person who beat you um is trying to do. Just saying. It is ten twelve. Um in a couple minutes we're scheduled to be joined by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan. Stick around. <laughs> It's ten fifteen. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. A recent fan-player incident has Major League Baseball looking for ways to combat racially charged interactions. Just how harsh should penalties get? Greg Matzik opens the discussion this evening. Sports Central at six oh seven. Be sure to tune in into that. A lot of stuff going on in Washington D.C. Um, Congress is scheduled to take a recess next week, so if things do not get done now. The, you know who knows exactly when they are going to get done. There's incredible pressure um, on Republicans in the House of Representatives and to a lesser extent in, in the U.S. Senate to try to advance an agenda. Because again, you you have the first 100 days that have now come and gone. That is one of the standards that is supposedly out there for how you're going to be able to accomplish things and how presidencies are going to be judged. This whole idea that, you know, we, we have to get stuff done. My philosophy has always been I want to get things done right as opposed to getting things done quickly. And if if it means that you have to wait a little while to try to get something done because you need to have a consensus and you need to get things done in the appropriate way, my attitude has always been, okay, that's that's the way we go and that's worth doing things, and there's no need to rush into a situation just to try to meet some sort of arbitrary deadline. There are major issues that we need to deal with in this country. I mean, we clearly need to deal with the whole question of repealing and replacing Obamacare in some form or another, because the reality of this is that Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is going to crumble if if it's not in a situation where something is done. Under Obamacare, the idea was that you would have all these insurers who would come forward and that they would offer coverage. Well, the reality of what's been happening is that it's just not working, and the number of choices are being decreased dramatically. So this poses the issue that people are trying to deal with. We are now joined by the guy who is at the forefront of that particular battle, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan. Uh, Congressman, good morning. Hey, how are you doing, Jeff? I am well. Interesting times in D.C., huh? (laughs) Always are. (laughs) Okay, Paul, let let, let me not, I'm just not going to bury the lead here. I mean, the question is, will there be some form of health care reform that is voted on and passed by the House of Representatives this week?
3: Well, that's what we're working toward. We never um, announce a vote until we're actually going to do the vote. We're making really good progress. Um, A couple of our members who are in what I call the no category I just went down with the president, met with him. They came up with a good amendment that adds uh, to the bill, improves it, and uh, we think brings us more votes. So we're making good progress. We've got some momentum, and so we feel really good about that. Fred Upton, who was the chairman of the the committee, uh, so we're making good progress on some improvements to the bill uh, that don't reduce support but add support to the bill. So we're still building and working toward that goal.
0: Um, Congressman, the hang-up, I seem to understand, has to do in part with how you handle pre-existing conditions. Can can you explain that? Yeah, a lot of this is more about
3: perception than the actual reality of the bill itself. So there are multiple layers of protections for people with pre-existing conditions in this bill. Let me just go back to the purpose of this bill. Obamacare is failing. Double-digit premium increases. Insurance companies are pulling out of marketplaces. People are left with one or even fewer choices, meaning no choices, um, for health insurance carriers. Uh, we have to replace this law with one that works, with one that gives people more choices, lower prices, lower premiums. And we can do that while still protecting pre-existing conditions. And so this bill maintains all those protections for pre-existing conditions. But it also gives states like Wisconsin the ability to get a waiver to kind of do it our own way on how we best think we can maintain not just protections for pre-existing conditions but get premiums down. I met with the Wisconsin Insurance Commissioner, Ted Nichol, yesterday, and he was walking me through the HERSP, the high-risk pool we had in Wisconsin. It was a very good system. Ten percent of the people who bought their own health insurance, we call that the individual market, were in the HERSP. They had about eight or nine planes to choose from, open network, not a closed network. You can go to any doctor or any hospital that you wanted. And your premiums and deductibles were on average lower than what they are today under Obamacare. And so we in Wisconsin had a better way of actually making sure that everybody had affordable health care coverage. Well, this bill says to states like Wisconsin, you can go do those kinds of things again. you got to make sure you take care of people with pre preexisting conditions. And, oh, by the way, here's federal financing for your risk pools, something we've never had before in Wisconsin. And here's a refundable tax credit for people in that individual market to go buy a plan of their choosing. And you buy what you want to buy. We're not going to make people buy something. Um, that's what one of the big fatal conceits of Obamacare. And so we really believe that what we have here is, is, is a law or a bill, a proposal, to give people more choices. And by having more choices, you have more insurance carriers competing against each other for our business, not monopolies, not, not, com- not companies that are the last man standing with massive double-digit premium increases, which is sort of what's going on around America. And so that is basically the policy we're working toward. And members, rightfully so, just want to make sure that we have to sort of double and triple protections for people who have a, a pre existing condition. The Upton Amendment that's being worked on now uh, makes that clear. But we also want to make sure that states like ours can get back to having lower prices and more choices and more competition. That's what this is about.
0: Congressman, one of the things that was a little frustrating to me about the, the debate that was going on before the, the last proposed vote was that this general sentiment that there's really no problems with the Affordable Care Act and yeah. that there's really no reason to change it. That's not reality, is it?
3: It's not reality, but it's not only not reality, the law is collapsing. Let me just give you a sense of it. Um, more than a third of all counties in America today have just one health insurer left in those markets because of Obamacare. The average premium increase last year was 25%. Next year, it's going to be worse. The insurers are telling us there are going to be more pullouts, more counties with only one carrier left, and a number of counties now with no carriers left, and higher double-digit premium increases next year, which means people will just stop buying health insurance. They'll pay the penalty, and it gets even worse because only sick people go and buy the insurance, and the premiums just skyrocket even more. And so the law is in the middle of a collapse. And so we believe we have a duty to step in front of that, to repeal this law and replace it with one that works. And we have shown in states like Wisconsin how we can make this work. And we are bringing federal resources to make it even easier and work better for states like ours. And that's the point we keep making to folks.
0: We're speaking to um, House Speaker Paul Ryan. Uh, Congressman, much is also being made about the timing. Is there... For example, you know, we had some quotations from Governor Walker today saying, look, there, there's we, something obviously needs to be done, but there doesn't necessarily need to be an urgency. Does this need to get done this week or well, next week?
3: I won't say on a day, but we have to get it done as fast as possible for two reasons. The insurers are submitting their their rates for next year, and a lot of insurers are going to decide whether they even participate in, in, in health insurance, you know, next year alone. So – Insurers are waiting to see what's it going to look like. If it's, if it's going to look like Obamacare, then it's going to be really bad. The second thing is is we're using this, this tool called reconciliation, which, which is the one bill that prevents a filibuster in the Senate. And this reconciliation bill we have goes away soon. And so we lose this, this legislative vehicle we need to avoid a filibuster in the Senate so that we can get a bill to the president's desk. And so because of those two reasons, Um, there is um, a sense of of needing to get it done as soon as we can.
0: Um, Let's switch gears. Let's talk a little bit about tax reform. That's obviously something that the president's talked about. I know that's something that's been near and dear to your heart for a number of years. How how close are we to seeing meaningful tax reform, at least some bill coming out of of Congress?
3: Yeah, it's obviously going to happen in 2017. We want to get it right. Um, Unlike health care, we don't have um, such an artificial deadline staring over us is we can take our time to get it right. And this is the first time since I've been here, and I really think it's the first time um, since 1986, which is the last time we did comprehensive tax reform, where you have the White House, the Senate, and the House fully committed and fully engaged to do comprehensive tax reform. We had the worst tax system in the industrialized world. We want to have the best. And that's going to take us some time to figure it out. Um, We, I'd say, between the House, Senate, and the White House, agree in about 80% of what, tax reform looks like, it's sort of that final 20% that we're all working toward um, that we're going to figure out, Um, and it's the devil in the details, but the key thing is simplify the code, make it easier for families and small businesses and businesses to comply with, and make it more competitive so we can get tax rates on businesses lower so we can get faster economic growth, create more jobs. We tax our businesses at much, much higher tax rates than our foreign competitors tax theirs and that is costing us global competition, and it's slowing down our economy. And so we really think that it is the crown jewel of an economic growth agenda. Regulatory relief and regulatory reform, which we're deep into doing, is a big part of this, but nothing holds a candle to the power of tax reform and what it can do to grow our economy.
0: Do you anticipate that anything that comes out of Congress will be revenue neutral, in other words, any... Any cuts in taxes for certain groups or individuals will be offset by increases somewhere else.
3: Yeah. So, for us to be able to do this again and avoid a filibuster and use um, reconciliation, it has to be ultimately revenue neutral over over the ten year period. And we do we will account account inside of that economic growth. So we now look at tax laws um, and how they affect the economy. So taking into consideration the improvement you get in the economy with comprehensive tax reform, it will be uh, revenue neutral because that's how you make sure that you don't get filibustered.
0: Congressman, I, I, I read a lot of the, the Washington papers and the New York Times and things like that that drives me nuts sometimes. But after yeah. after the, the continuing resolution, what was in that process to keep government running through September, a lot of the coverage was hey, this shows how the Republicans don't have their act together. There's all this spending that's built in. Democrats are emboldened because now they think that from the budget they're, they're not going to be able to see cuts in any of their prize programs. Is that overstating the case? Will we be happy Very much with the so budget that we we comes
3: froze the, the IRS, the EPA, we had a lot of good cuts, we rescinded programs. Most importantly, we finally severed this Obama rule that if you want to help the military, for every dollar you you, you give to our military, you gotta give a dollar to, to you know wasteful domestic spending. We don't do that in this bill, and we finally severed that Obama parity rule. That's a huge deal for us. Um, it's a big accomplishment. We had the biggest increase in border security funding in a decade. So we have a big down payment on border security in this bill. Um, and just remember, um, this is a bill that can be filibustered. Therefore, you have to get 60 votes in the Senate to pass it. So these bills, um, in every case, these appropriation bills, have to be bipartisan. Even with that, we had two big, huge objectives for the president. Help the military and do it without having this Obama rule of a dollar-for-dollar dollar, military and domestic. We got that. And we did not have to, you know, we had a $21 billion increase in the military to help revitalize um, their problems. And, and we did not have a corresponding increase in domestic spending. And then get a down payment on border security. There are many other wins in here, like school choice program in Washington, D.C., reauthorized. And you know the left hates school choice vouchers. So we have a lot of, we have kept all our pro-life riders. So there are a lot of good wins in here. But again, at the end of the day, it has to be a bipartisan bill in order to go into law.
0: What's going to happen with the wall?
3: Well, that's going to be the big fight in the summer because what the White House has told us is this current bill funds is a five month funding bill, and the wall takes more than five months to just plan and prepare to execute. Um, this bill says you can you can add fencing, you can do a lot of things on the border that we need as prep work, and this summer we will have um, a big uh, debate and decision about um, about the full longer term funding of the wall.
0: How would you describe your relationship
3: with President Trump currently? Very good. We speak. Pretty much every single day, uh, very very good. He he's coming up to speed really fast with just how um, how government works, how Congress works. It's different than business. The founders created a system which it's which can be frustrating, but it's it's deliberative. It means you have to get votes and consensus, and you have to deliberate, and you have to pass a bill to the House and the Senate and the White House. And so the president, more than any president I've ever served with, and this is the fifth one I've served with. Um, this president is more engaged on a day-to-day basis with members of Congress than I've seen of any other president.
0: Paul, let me ask you uh, one of the questions I always when I when I see you on TV or read the stories. I'm Fourth president, sorry. I've, are there are there days when you're sorry you took on the job <laughs> of Speaker of the House?
3: <laughs> you get that with any? Are there days when you're sorry you took on um, taking the radio? Right. Sure. <laughs> so, so, Every you know, look. Uh, I'm a policy guy, and and you know the point is my my colleagues drafted me to do this job, and I'm honored that they did this, and it's an absolute honor. Um, these are difficult times for our country, but we have an amazing opportunity in front of us, and and that's why at the end of the day, at the beginning of the end of the day, I thank God, I thank my colleagues for this opportunity, I thank the people in the first district of Wisconsin for giving me this chance to serve, and I really do believe it's a it's a very important moment for our country, and so that at the end of the day is what t- tops it off for me is this opportunity and how blessed I am to have it.
0: House speaker Paul Ryan thanks so much for joining me this morning good luck we'll be uh, i'm sure we'll be talking soon take care. All right take care. Absolutely that's the speaker of the house Paul Ryan it's 10:30 Jeff Wagner 620 will be T M J. It's 1036, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, my takeaway from our interview with the House Speaker, Paul Ryan, um, they want to try to get something done with health care. They don't have the votes yet to do it. The pre-existing condition coverage is part of the hang-up, um, but I, I get the impression that he thinks that they're going to be able to work something out. The, you know, and, and Congressman Ryan is right that, Wisconsin, for example, and this is the point I've been making for a while, you know, Wisconsin, through their high risk pool before the Affordable Care Act, really had an affordable way to cover the, to deal with the pre existing illness condition thing. And they were able to do it the way we had it set up in Wisconsin. You had it more affordable than it is under Obamacare. And more importantly, you had it with more choices. And so what they're trying to do, and the way they're going to portray this in the national media, is by giving the states the ability to opt out of it and develop their own sort of pools, what's what that means is you're effectively going to be doing away with the preexisting, you know, condition coverage. And that's not the case. Like I say, in Wisconsin, I think you can make a much a very strong argument for saying that we did we dealt with this issue on the state level a lot better than they did with they dealt with it under the affordable care act now i don't know will all states be as wise as wisconsin who knows i mean who who knows whether that's the case or not but nevertheless i think it has you know a, a lot of potential there but i get the sense they don't have the votes yet but they are are moving towards that also i think one of the key takeaways and this is what's been frustrating to me from the beginning Once you have an entitlement program that gets put into effect, I don't know in the history of this country whether we've ever done away with that entitlement program because people get used to it, but the simple reality is, and this is the point that Congressman Ryan was making, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is not sustainable. One of the things that was so frustrating to me a month ago when you had all this coverage about, well, this is what the GOP plan would do, and this is how it pertains to Obamacare now. There is not going to be Obamacare in a couple years. There's just not. Premiums are going through the roof. The number of insurers who are participating in the plans are, are down to very, very few, with more dropping out because the way the thing is set up, It is impossible to make any sort of money, even with an incredible amount of taxpayer subsidies that goes in. The truth is something needs to be done, and the sooner it's done, the better. And he was talking about how reconciliation, that's one of these procedural things, would allow it to happen without being subject to a filibuster by Democrats in in the Senate, how that is so important. But the, the truth is, even if you, to paraphrase President Obama, even if you like your Obamacare, you're not going to be able to keep it because it's not going to exist in its present form within the next couple of years unless something dramatic happens. So I think that's one of the takeaways. Paul Ryan saying the tax reform is going to get done sometime in 2017, and I think one of the keys is that it will be revenue neutral. And this is where when he makes the reference to the devil being in the details, he's right. By, by revenue neutral, if if there's if there are quote unquote winners. If you're going to have tax breaks for certain people or tax cuts for certain people, it needs to be offset by revenue increases somewhere else. And that's where the battle is going to be. For example, I know one of the plans that Congressman Ryan has been pushing, we didn't have enough time to go into it in detail, but would be like import taxes as a way of raising money. There's other suggestions that maybe we want to do things like, and I think it would be a horribly bad idea, um, eliminating of 401k pre-tax contributions you know nowadays one of the principal investment vehicles that people have to save for the retirement is contributing to your 401k plans at work And you've got two types of 401k plans you've got the pre-tax 401k plan which is where for every dollar you put in out of earned income to your 401k plan you get to reduce your current taxes the the, the, de- the flip side of that is when you take the money out, when you withdraw it, you then have to pay tax on it. But it grows ta- – you get the tax break up front and you get the earnings that grow tax-free until you start to take it out. The other type of plan is what they call like the Roth 401K or the Roth IRAs where you pay tax up front and then the money gets to grow tax-free forever. Well, okay uh, – depending on your financial situation, either one makes sense. But most people, the incentive for them to save for their retirement is you get the initial tax deduction. I am very, very afraid that if you took that away, yes, the government would get a bunch of money up front because people would be paying taxes, but that would just create an incredible disincentive for people to save for their retirement so they wouldn't participate. So, but that's, Those are the things that are on the table for how you're going to fund tax reform. And when he talks about, you know, the devil being in the details, that's what needs to um, be worked out. I also thought it was very interesting when I asked him candidly your relationship with the president. And um, he says, very good. And he talks about, I mean, that's not necessarily a take you get from the mainstream media about how he, you know, believes that he's, um, you have a president who's very much up to speed and how he's very, very engaged. And that's certainly not the impression that you get if you, Only get your information from, you know, MSNBC or sources like that. All right, coming up next, was it a bubble and has it burst? Stick around. 1042, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1045, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Alexis Patterson's stepdad says he's still devastated 15 years after her disappearance. John Mercure shares his Center interview with Laurent Bourgeois. Bourgeois, I think is how you pronounce it. Beginning at 3 o'clock on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Matter of fact, um, this, is, this is really must-listen to radio, in my opinion. And um, John's going to be joining me right after the 11 o'clock news. I want to talk a little bit about this feature. This is... Um, This is absolutely right up his wheelhouse, and I know he's done a tremendous job. The entire show today on Wisconsin's Afternoon News is going to be devoted to the the disappearance of Alexis Patterson and what happened and suspects and whether or not whoever did this to her will ever be brought to justice. Um, We'll have John in, like I say, about 10 after 11 to discuss this. All right. I, I have never claimed to be like an early adopter. Or I'm, I'm always one of those guys that, gee, everybody else has the MP3 players, and then I say, oh, this is really cool, or everybody else, you know, has the smartphones, and then, with the exception of my brother-in-law, and Dave, I'm talking to you, Dave uh, Dave still has a flip phone, and, I, and I, I think he's, and I know there's a handful of you out there, but most, most people, you know, have the smartphones nowadays, except my brother-in-law is very proud of that. But, I mean, I, I had mine for a while, and then all of a sudden you get, and you go, my gosh, what, what was I missing? All right, um... The automobile industry has been on a tear really since, since 2009. As, as they started coming out of the recession, um, the, the shares of, of particularly new cars sold has gone up and up and up and up as people continue to buy cars. Um, I, I, of course, I of course missed that. Um, but I just, just recently purchased a new car. Just absolutely love my, my new vehicle and things like that. But I, I'm coming in apparently at the tail end of the expansion. When, when President Trump talks about creating jobs and helping rebuild the economy, the American automobile industry is a key component in that. Um, and as we talk about, you know, again, continuing to grow and get more jobs and grow the economy, continuing sales of new cars continues to be, you know, one of the key factors. Um, here's, here's the problem. The top six automakers in the American market all reported declines Year to year from their April sales a year ago, um, and in every case the fall off exceeded analysts' forecasts. Um, as a result of this, uh, shares of Ford Motor and Fiat Chrysler were down more than four percent. General Motors sales fell almost three percent in April. Automakers sold about one point four million cars and trucks. That was down one point. Uh, that was down from one point five million a year ago, and. Automakers are starting to see what's going on, and apparently they're preparing to trim the number of vehicles they are making, and that means that there's going to be some jobs that are eliminated. About 1,100 workers at a GM plant in Lansing, Michigan are being laid off this month and will be out of work for at least five months. They say that they hope to rehire seven of them. Three other GM plants are eliminating shifts, uh, moves that are going to idle about another 3,000 workers the comeback of the automobile industry since 2009 has really been driven by low gasoline prices, um, which fed into the fact that lots of us like to drive sport utility vehicles and trucks, which are our profit centers. The automobile makers make a lot more on selling a a SUV or a truck um, than they do on like some of the smaller cars. But, but now all, all of the automakers are seeing new car sales, fall off 414-799-1620 that is the Acunet mortgage talk and text line all right if if the automobile industry has a substantial pullback in sales of like new cars that's going to have i think a significant effect on the economy moving forward the numbers right now suggest that for the last couple months compared year to date compared with last year you know fewer people are buying cars is this Here's what I want to talk about with you. There are some people who would argue that this is part of a long-term trend, that this maybe reflects some hesitancy about the economy and the willingness of consumers to commit to big-ticket purchases. I don't agree. I I mean, the automobile industry has always been a little bit cyclical. I I mean, I think what's happening now is that, you know, you, you can't just continue to grow unlimited month after month after month. And I think sometimes just what you see in the natural progress of things is that, okay, sometimes there's a little bit of a pullback, but that doesn't mean that people aren't feeling good about the economy or that people aren't going to be willing to spend on new cars. It's just, okay, you go through a couple months where, okay, maybe there's a slight pullback. I think the demand for new cars is probably as great now as it was two or three years ago, and I think to the extent there's been a little bit of a pullback, it it will rebound. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. guess here's the way to look at this. If you're in the market for a new car, are you delaying that purchase, or are you going to pull the trigger as soon as you find the car that's right for you and you you get the deal that you want? 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't think this is really the economy. I think that this is just to the extent, you know, you have a month where people go down or two months or three months, you know, where people aren't buying as many as the year before. I just think that's kind of more of a blip than any sort of long-term concern. But, I mean, are you in the market for a new car? Are you making the decision to hold off? Or are are you ready to go out and buy one, you know, once you find that car you want? How are you handling car shopping? 414-799-1620. That is the Actonet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To the extent there's a drop-off, again, I don't think it's part of an overall economic concern. I just think it's probably a a minor blip. But that's my take. What's happening with you? It's 10.52. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 10.55. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we're going to talk to John McCure about the special he's doing. And then after that... Does the impeached Trump crowd just need to give it a rest? Right now, we're talking about the fact that for the last several months, sales of new cars have declined. I I don't think this is part of a long-term trend. I just think it's more of a blip. Joe in Illinois. Joe, you're on 620 TMJ. Good morning.
2: Hey, good morning. How are you, sir?
0: I'm very well, thank you. What do you think? I mean, are, are you holding off buying a new car?
2: I am. I'm holding off because I think we're going to see an explosion in electric cars. I think seven to ten years from now, you won't be able to give away a gasoline car like a tube TV.
0: Seven to ten I, years. Okay. All right.
2: Yeah, Tell me why. And I, Well, there's a fellow, a, uh, the inventor of the lithium-ion battery is working with the University of Austin, Texas. He's 94 years old. They just discovered a new battery, a static uh, sodium uh, solenoid battery that's able to, the capacity is four times that of lithium-ion. Right. Also, you only use seawater to, to pull the battery from everything I've read. So I think you're going to see a partnership possibly with Tesla, something where it's just you know going to explode, and this technology is going to be so revolutionary. It's going to happen so quickly hmm. that um, I think that the maybe the, the auto manufacturers are kind of seeing that coming, and they're fair enough for remanufacturing.
0: Yeah. Well, interesting, Joe. I mean, I guess I, I – my – thanks for call. I would – I guess I would disagree just because – As long as gas prices are low, I I just – I mean, right now, the sale of hybrid cars is just – it's just dropping off the map. I mean, people – I don't want to say people aren't buying hybrids, but that – the whole obsession that we had with, you know, getting 50, 60 miles a gallon when when gas prices were high has kind of gone away. I guess I think as long as gas prices remain low, I – and I, I agree with you on electric cars, that the big hang-up on electric cars is things like battery life and stuff like that. Um, I, maybe there will be a point in time where there is an explosion on electric cars. I don't think that's going to happen, though, unless and until you see a prolonged increase in gasoline prices that makes it more desirable for people to do that. As long as gasoline prices continue to be historically low – I think Americans are still going to want their trucks. They're still going to want their, their SUVs. So while I think at some point in time you're going to be right, um, five to seven years seems to me to be awful, awful, awful low. I, um, I, I'm just I'm just saying. I think that I, I think that what you're seeing right now is really it's just it's just a pause. And you've had a lot of people who during the recession delayed buying new cars. They just said we can't afford it or whatever. We're going to try to get an extra year or two out of our car. And I think a lot of them now just went out and bought and purchased new cars. So, you know, if the truth of the matter is, if you've purchased a new car in the last two or three years, unless you're somebody who, again, changes your car every two or three years, and I'm not one of those people, you, you don't need a, a car. Um, let's see. Chris sends us on our text line, I've worked in the auto supply chain industry for 20 years now. These are normal cycle. Cars are becoming like cell phones with all the new tech that's being offered. People bought cars in the last recession, just not as many. Normal macroeconomics. Yeah, I will tell you, I mean, that's one of the things that drove me. Um, I I needed a new car. I I needed a new car. And I just, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I love the bells and whistles. I mean, because my last car... Which was a 2010 vehicle, had none of these things on it. And I love the rear view camera, and I love, I love the heated seats, and I love the lane deviation stuff, and I love all these different things that I think are on it. I still even haven't figured out how to do all these different things. Um, but I think it's, it's really cool, and I'm not sure that I would ever be able to go back to, to the old way. And I think, you know, but more and more people, again, I was a, a late adopter. A lot of people have purchased cars in the last few years, and now I have joined those ranks, but I, I think, I'm not worried about the American automobile industry. I understand that you've had a slight downturn. I think as long as gas prices stay low, I think the industry is going to be just fine. Gasoline prices start to go up dramatically. It is a different story. Which is, of course, another argument for, you know, energy independence and fracking and things like that. All right. It is 1059. In just a couple minutes, we're going to be joined by John McCurry. He's going to tell you all about what he's got coming up this afternoon about Alexis Patterson. It is must listen to radio. Stick around 1059. This is Jeff Wagner. 1109, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. For about a week now, we've been telling you about a special broadcast that's uh, going to take place this afternoon on Wisconsin's Afternoon News involving the 15th year anniversary of the disappearance of Alexis Patterson. And I, as I've been saying, I think it's going to be must-listen to radio, and the guy that's going to be doing that must-listen to radio joins me in the studio, John McCure. Good
4: morning. Hey, Jeff, thanks for having me on. Tell, tell me a little bit about what you've got planned for today. Boy, it's pretty incredible. So, you know, you go back to May third, two 2002. It was a Friday. Alexis Patterson disappeared. That was 15 years ago. This was shortly after David Clark became sheriff. So this was the first big high-profile event, the first test, if you will, for the sheriff. The sheriff every year has laid a wreath as a commemoration. He did it again this morning. But he hasn't talked about it in depth. He pretty much doesn't talk to anybody these days. It's in the local media. But we were able to sit down with the sheriff, and you will hear that this afternoon. And what's so fascinating, Jeff, our exclusive interview with Sheriff David Clark, he talks about why it's so important to him. He takes us back to that day 15 years ago, and he makes a strong and I think some would say startling accusation about one individual and what he thinks happened to Alexis on that day. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got very strong opinions he doesn't believe the stepdad who says he walked Alexis to school and watched her walk onto the playground. So you hear that exclusive conversation with Sheriff Clark. It's sad, it's poignant, it's angry at times. And then the man he pointed the finger at, Laurent Bourgeois, I went and interviewed Laurent in prison, and that's an experience now, if you never done he, that. He's in prison for something completely unrelated to the Alexis yes. Patterson disappearance. Unrelated. He's never been charged with anything related to Alexis Patterson. So he's in prison unrelated charges he's been in and out of prison for the past 10 years none of it related to the disappearance of alexis but i sit down and talk to him and lead him through what he remembers that day because he's the one who claims he was the last one to definitively see her alive so you hear from him he cries it's emotional and then halfway through the 25 minute interview i tell him about the sheriff's accusations and what the sheriff believes, and it was like flipping a switch. You will hear Laurent Bourgeois, the stepdad, get very angry, very pointed words for the sheriff. It's 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 really something, and you'll hear that this afternoon. John,
0: why do you think this case ha- has remained in everybody's consciousness? I mean, for anybody who was around here 15 years ago, and you say Alexis Patterson, they, they might not remember all the details, but but they remember this case. What is it that you think about this case
4: really such touched such a nerve with people? I think it's two things. I think one it's because she was a little girl. She was a very cute little girl, and we can all picture that picture of her in the piggy tails, ponytails in the picture. I think the second thing is that this community, three days after she disappeared, became so engaged. Remember the posters, the hundreds of volunteers, the multi-jurisdictional effort to find her. Day after day it was in the news. And these sort of things just don't happen that often, Jeff, where a little girl disappears and eventually they don't find her body or they don't find a clue or they don't charge somebody. And so it's one of the great cases in Milwaukee history of a person disappearing that's never been solved. It just doesn't happen that often. Right. Now,
0: so let's take us through a little bit about what you're going to be doing this afternoon because you're essentially devoting the entire three hours Wisconsin's afternoon news to
4: this analysis of this. The whole three hours, Jeff, you're right. So we'll give you your traffic and your weather and all that stuff, but the whole three hours will be the 15th anniversary of the disappearance of Alexis Patterson. You'll hear from Sheriff David Clark. We're the only ones that have that. You'll hear that this afternoon. You'll hear from Laurent Bourgeois. It's our uh, prison interview. We go behind the bars to talk to him. Also, you will hear this afternoon from uh, an expert in cold cases, and he has very poignant information about why these are so tough to solve, and he has insight into Alexis. And, Jeff, we'll also walk people through what you just raised, why this resonates with people, what we know and what we don't know. We'll go back through the timeline, and we'll also dissect some of the leads that police have investigated over the years. It's three hours dedicated to the disappearance of Alexis Patterson beginning at 3 o'clock.
0: And as I said, John, it's going to – I mean, I know a couple of things that you've uncovered. It's it's just – it's going to be must-listen to radio, so tune in. Wisconsin's Afternoon News with John McCure at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Thanks for stopping in. Thank you for having me, Jeff. We'll take a quick break. When we come back next, all right, do th- th- the impeach Trump folks need to get a life? Stick around. It's 1116. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Um, can the Brewers beat the Cardinals in the rain tonight in st. Louis only one way to find out Bob Eucher and Jeff Levering um, have the call from Bush Stadium this evening it begins at 640 that is sponsored by Catholic financial life huh kind of interesting um, the the local newspaper which is uh, we used to share a corporate identity with and we, we do not any longer um, they they're just they went through another round of Okay, this is it, it. Is not a unique problem to the Journal Sentinel, but the, the reality is, and I've tried to explain this before, without without trying to be too unfair. Do I believe that there's a media bias in the print media? Absolutely, no, no, question about it. But but the reasons why the print industry have been struggling, I think, are 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 way beyond you know the, the politics and, and the bias. So I think, for example, the local newspaper treated conservative readers with disdain for years. Yes, I do. I think that that contributed to some conservative readers not you know, buying the paper. Yes, I do. But but the big problem that, that newspapers, whether it's a local newspaper or any newspaper have, is that people's, people's tastes and the way they get information have changed. There is an incredible demand, maybe more of a demand now than ever, for information. But... People want the information on their own terms. You want it. You, you don't want to wait for you know the paper guy to deliver your hard copy of the newspaper at six thirty in the morning. You want the information when you want it, and you want it during the day. So in, in many situations, um, it has become the, the the delivery of a home newspaper has become, again, it's a relic. It, it is a dinosaur, which isn't to say that there aren't people who like hard copies of newspapers. I'm one of them. As I've said, I get one, two, three, I get four newspapers hard copies of newspapers delivered to my home. I don't get a chance to read them all every day, but when I do, I I enjoy sitting down there and paging through the newspapers. But the reality is, you talk to anybody under the age of 30, maybe people under the age of 40, and they never pick up a hard copy of a newspaper. They just, that's not how they get the information. They might log on to the Internet. They might read the stories, not only in the local paper, but in all sorts of papers that are digital but they are not getting the hard copies of the newspaper. And since people fewer and fewer people are getting the hard copies of the newspaper, what's happened is it, it's not just that subscriptions have, have tailed off, but it's also that advertising revenue has dropped dramatically because again, if fewer and fewer people, you know, advertising revenue is based on the number of people who you know take the product. So advertising revenues dropped. Classified ads, I, I nobody I don't want to say nobody, almost nobody, you know, goes and and looks for jobs, does their job search, or, you know, looks to buy things through classified ads anymore. That used to be on a Sunday paper, there'd be like three sections of classified ads. That's not how people, you know, shop anymore, and that's been the the Internet that's there. So newspapers have been struggling with losing the revenue from advertising, losing the revenue from classified ads, and um, trying to figure out how to deal with an environment where fewer and fewer people, while they want the information, don't want the hard copies of the paper, and um, it, it's been it's been very difficult times for lots and lots of newspapers. Um, cuts and cuts and cuts, and then it becomes sort of a self fulfilling prophecy. as if you're as when you when you get rid of people and beats and um, coverage, the more and more of the, that you drop. Then more and more people say, okay, well, what's the, what's the sense of continuing to, to get the newspaper? So that, that's been a struggle. Local newspaper going through, I think, another round of, of buyouts. And, uh, a, a couple of their veteran sports writers apparently are, are going to be leaving. They're reporting that, um, Bob McGinn, who's the guy who's done Packer coverage and I think does an extremely good job, and Charles Gardner, both in the sports, uh, section there, um, they are both going to, uh, be leaving. So, um, actually, McGinn's columns and his knowledge of the Packers, I think, was one of the reasons why lots and lots of people um, tuned in or, or, or actually continue to continue to read the the coverage of the the Packers and take the paper. And so they're um, they are now both of them are leaving. I don't know if it was buyouts or whatever. McGinn is sixty five, and there there comes a time when you move on. But this is, um, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I do believe. The Journal Sentinel has done very well over the years. Is its sports coverage, particularly its Packers coverage, and I think Bob McGinn has been a huge part of that. And he's now um, he is going to be leaving, and that will be a that will certainly be a blow to the local newspaper. They've still got some good reporters there, and I'm sure that there's going to be intense coverage. But that is that's kind of big news. Okay, I understand that Donald Trump is controversial. I actually thought it was interesting when I talked to Paul Ryan about an hour ago. And I asked him about his relationship, and there's really no reason to lie. I don't, I don't think so. And, he, and, and Ryan said, you know, it's very, very good. And he said the president's becoming more and more very engaged. They talk about issues on an almost daily basis. Um, and, and I thought it was a very sort of positive thing. Now, I understand that the, the, the we hate Donald Trump crowd continues to be out in force and that, that for some people – there's nothing that he can do that will ever make them happy. Hillary Clinton has the audacity to go out and talk about how she's kind of like the phrase from Star Wars. She's part of the, the resistance, um, not, hey, I want to try to, to do things to hope that this presidency succeeds. It's I'm bitter. I'm angry. I didn't win. I think this is terrible. I'm going to be part of the resistance. So you, you have that going on and you have kind of the people that are – Deep in the you know anti-Trump the derangement syndrome the Trump derangement syndrome thing, and then you've got people who just disagree with him on matters of policy, and I understand all that, but there there is a certain subset of people that are out there who are obsessed with the notion of impeachment. There was a big story in the Washington Post about um, Representative Maxine Waters, who is the I don't know if she's certifiably crazy, but she's crazy. Um, She's the congresswoman. She's been around forever. She's from California. She represents one of the most reliably Democratic districts in the country. So she's pretty much free to do, you know, whatever she wants. And she's become sort of the poster child now at the end of her career for the Let's Impeach Trump movement. And that, you know, you know, she, uh, for example, you know, she's speaking at an event the other day and she gets up on stage and says, Donald Trump is someone that found his way to the presidency of the United States of America. I still don't know how, but he's someone that I'm committed to getting impeached. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a con man. We've got to stop him. And so at the age of 78, um, Maxine Waters, she's now. She's attracting all this attention and all these new admirers because her her reason for being has become to try to impeach Donald Trump. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I understand why people might not like some of the things that President Trump does. I understand why people might disagree with certain aspects of his personality. But this idea that there are people who are obsessed with with trying to impeach him, I think is the height of Trump derangement syndrome. And I think people in this category desperately need to get a life. Four one four seven nine that is the accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. At this point in time, you know, 100 plus days in the presidency, is there really any reason to be talking about impeaching Donald Trump? I don't think so. What do you think? 414-799-1620. That's the academic Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. It's 1125. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1127. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Maxine Waters, 78 years old. She's a very, very, very liberal congresswoman from a very Democratic district in California. Um, I I don't know if she's certifiably crazy, but I, I do think she's... I think she's nuts. And I thought that for a while. She, has, she is now really going through like a second resurgence of life in politics because she is going around the country talking about how her main mission is to get President Trump impeached. I understand how people can disagree with Trump's positions on this, that, or the other issue. I understand how people cannot be thrilled with his personality. But really, I mean, are these people nuts? impeachment. Now, is it possible that evidence might turn up to believe that there's an impeachable offense? Well, I guess it's possible, but I mean, so far, there's nothing like that. I mean, aren't do these people need to get a life? Herb in Broadhead. Herb, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning.
1: Hey, Jeff. I think it's a great idea. I think it's going to show the, the how the leftists have become just so unhinged and just so disassociated with the rest of society that voted for him, that they're only going to detract away from their own base from doing it. I think some of them are actually still somewhat reasonable, but... Yeah.
0: Well, it's it's kind of like, Herb, you know, the Walker derangement syndrome in the wake of, you know, Act Act 10. And I understand back then how people... Okay, especially public employees, maybe you don't like the cutbacks on collective bargaining, and maybe people didn't like the fact that they'd have to contribute more to their health insurance. But when you saw people from all over the country coming in and throwing these tantrums like spoiled children, I think a lot of mainstream America looked at this and said, even if we're sympathetic, we don't want to be part of this group. And I think that's the same thing with impeachment. I mean, really, what has he done that's impeachable? Nothing, nothing.
1: Nothing. They're just grasping at straws just to find any reason at all just to continue their
0: temper tantrum. Right, yeah, so any reason or no reason. And that's it. Well, we don't like him. We think he's terrible. We can't believe that he got elected president. Well, okay, he got elected president. That's the reality. John in Yorkville on our text line says, these people that hate Trump can impeach him when he does something wrong. High crimes and misdemeanors have not happened. They are only hurting their own cause by talking this BS. And, you know, that's, I think there there's kind of a point to that because at a certain point in time, you you begin to sound like you're crazy and and to be talking about impeachment now and again I, you don't have to like him, you know you don't have to approve of the job he's doing or whatever. but this idea of whether it's Hillary Clinton, I'm part of the resistance or we're going to try to figure out a way to you know impeach him, he hasn't done anything that is subject to impeachment. Now if it turns out, You know, you got something going on with the Russians or something like that. All right. Okay. Am I ruling out that there's any possibility of that? No. But in the interim, in the meantime, maybe rather than worrying about the president and trying to figure out how to impeach him, maybe you'd be spending your time better trying to figure out how to fix the Affordable Care Act before it completely craters or how to do tax reform or how to do any of those other things instead of putting on your tinfoil hat and going down this route. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes. I mentioned this yesterday and got a lot of emails. Is it over for ESPN? Eleven thirty-five, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. I mentioned this yesterday. ESPN, which used to be a license to print money has fallen on on hard times um they they announced what was it last week um over a hundred layoffs of of reporters and commentators lots of people who you watched over the years gone chris berman perhaps being the most prominent one and and it's all part of this larger problem with espn first of all um What's happened is they made a couple really bad financial deals. They cut this deal with the NFL for the the crappy Monday night games that they have. And normally they get crappy games. Um, They are paying twice what any other network pays to air pro football. They signed a 12-year, $7.3 billion contract contract for the college football playoffs that they appear to be losing money for. They uh, pay the NBA $2.66 billion a year. They've cut this new TV deal with the Big Ten that will cost $2.64 billion a year. Um, it's They've cut some really incredibly expensive deals. The reason why, for the longest time, live sports was so valuable is because it was. It's one of the few things where you can't time shift. You know, nowadays with with the advent of DVRs, what happens is, let's say you've got a favorite show, um, but you you want to watch it on your own time. You don't want to watch. Okay, I like Fargo. Fargo's on tonight. Um, whatever the channel is, uh, from nine to ten. But you're busy from nine to ten. So what you can do is you can DVR it, and then you can go back and watch it at your own time. And what else can you do? You can skip through the commercials. So the advertisers know that, and so there's always kind of a discount because they're paying money to run their ads on on these shows, but even if you're watching the shows you might not be watching the commercials Well that's not true with live sports I mean live sports is one thing that people you don't DVR as a general as a general rule if there's a Packers game that's on you know maybe, maybe you're gonna go to the bathroom or go get a sandwich or something you know during a commercial but as a general rule, you're not going to Tape it. You're not going to record it and watch it later. You know, you're not. When everybody else knows whether the Packers won or lost, you want to watch that. So that's one of the reasons why why advertisers have paid a lot for live sport to have their show their commercials on live sports programming because it's something that historically has been immune from again these DVR things and and the time shifting and not watching commercials. Well, that's that's changed because. In some respects, while there's interest in sports, people are, it's oversaturated nowadays. Um, ESPN, in addition to it, because ESPN has been the, well, the the gorilla in the room. It's been the thing that if you're a cable provider or satellite network, you you have to have ESPN. I mean, everybody had wanted ESPN. So what's happened is ESPN charged cable operators like a ton of money to carry ESPN. So let's say you know, it would cost $2 to carry some other network. ESPN would charge 10 And then the cable networks would provide, but then they pass that cost on. So, you know, you and you had to have ESPN as part of most of the packages, and you had to pay a lot. Well, because there's all these alternatives that are out there, um, more people cutting the cord, more and more consumers have been price conscious, and they've been saying, we, you know, we like ESPN, but we don't want to pay ten dollars a month for it so you know we're, we're not gonna take this and we're gonna find other ways to do this in addition ESPN has been changing because what made ESPN and I used to love SportsCenter I used to love SportsCenter because it was all sports highlights you know you, you could tune in at 10 o'clock at night and you could watch you know the highlights from all the different games that were around if, if you weren't following them. well with all the other things that are now available, whether it's, you know, now you've got the NFL network and you've got the NHL network and you've got the NBA network and you've got MLB, for example, and they're all available on cable. Um, and you've got internet and streaming and things like that. The, the highlights, if you want to see the highlights, you know, you can see them pretty much in, in real time, anytime you want. If I, if I want to f- figure out what's going on in baseball, for example, I mean, I tune into the Major League Baseball network, and and it's all there. I don't have to wait for 10 o'clock. So the show that was built around, um, again, showing highlights, well, there's not as much interest in that anymore because you can get that information elsewhere. So all all of that has led ESPN to kind of change its model. They're trying to adapt. So now you have more and more of the entertainment stuff. You know, it, it's not Sports Center anymore. Here we're going to show you the highlights. It's Sports Center with so and so and so and so, and they're going to be doing entertainment ish, you know, they're going to be doing inter- entertainment, um, interviews, or they're going to be having some movie star come on and talk about, you know, why he likes English Premier League soccer or whatever. And they get farther and farther away from what I think was the, the core thing that they did that made everybody want to like them. Alright, 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage talk and text line. Um, there's a story in the Chicago Tribune the other day about how, from the perspective of, if you're like me, you're a sports fan, how your life might be able, is about to change dramatically because of the different changes that ESPN is making. I understand they've got to do stuff to try to stay relevant, but the truth of the matter is, the changes that they're making on ESPN, I don't know if they're trying to appeal to a demographic or to a viewer who's a lot different than me, but there's lots of times that, candidly, other than the live, other than the live sports broadcast that I want to see, I almost find ESPN to be, and I'm this is from this perspective, of somebody was a fan, I almost find it to be almost unwatchable now because it's gone so far away from what I think was its original mission. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accudent Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think the glory days of ESPN are are way 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 over and by trying to go into more entertainment related programming and getting away from what what they do well which is sports highlights and things I think they're going to kill their I think they're going to kill their brand. All right, what do you think? 414 799 is the number. We discuss next. It's 11:42. Jeff Wagner 620 WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. Eleven forty six, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. The um, let's see, just before we move into that, be listening again tomorrow at nine ten for your chance to win a four pack of tickets to see the Brewers host the Mets, and you'll qualify to follow the Brewers to St. Louis to see the Crew take on the Cardinals. Follow the Brewers, sponsored by West Bend, the Silver Lining Noodles and Company, and the home of the Brewers, six twenty, WTMJ. I, I mean, Sports Center on ESPN at, at ten o'clock or eleven o'clock used to be much wa- must watch for me. I I now find it to be almost unwatchable. ESPN has these major problems. Put simply, they pay too much for what they put on, and not enough people want to pay as much money as they charge to get it. And it looks to me like they're in the spiral. And so now what they're doing is they're going away from what what made them so successful and going into more of these entertainment programming things. And, And like I say, at least for a guy like me, and maybe I'm not their target demo, although I am somebody who has the disposable income to spend on for example, paying a cable company to carry ESPN, it, it's almost unwatchable. Rob in Green Bay. Rob, you're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning.
2: Good morning. I agree with you 100%. You know, I don't mind them spending the money to put these these sports events on, but they could lay off another 500 people as far as I'm concerned because they bring these people in to sit and talk about these games, and nobody really cares. So is the highlights. I don't mind if you have a game and are reporting live before and after. Right. But don't even bring these people in okay, a Bucks Playoff came the other night and they bring in six people to sit and talk about. We don't really care. That's on all day long in sports radio. Well,
0: well well right, and then and then you have the efforts to duplicate sports radio by okay, how much of Stephen Smith screaming can can you stand? After a while it's like, Okay, enough, stop, stop, stop. I you know, I don't this is not what I'm tuning in or paying for to see on ESPN.
2: And but then they also what they'll do if you watch them, they'll have a celebrity come in. Yeah, he's there for Mike and Mike. He's there for the next show. He's there for the next show. He's on the radio for the next show. Well, it's overkill. You, you eventually you're going to turn it off because the guy can only say so much.
1: Well,
0: well, right. I mean, th- again, I think, it, and it, it's getting away from th- that's one of the problems. I mean, the other problem is that okay. Nowadays, you have different choices. Even if you, if you want to watch the games, what you can do is you you can let's say you're a major league baseball fan. Well, you can get the a Major League Baseball package, and you can watch any game you want, and you you know, you know, can do it um, on your smartphone, you can do it on your tablet, you can do it on your computer. You, you don't need to be tied to watching ESPN show yet another game between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. No offense to the Yankees or the Red Sox, but, okay, you know, if you're a Milwaukee Brewers fan, you don't really care about that, especially after they've shown four or five games. Aaron in Milwaukee. Aaron, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ.
5: Hi, Jeff. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. How's the call? Um, my husband and I are avid sports watchers, and we come from sport watching families. And I think a lot of this has a lot to do with generational factors, such as we're in our mid thirties, and we don't want to pay two hundred some dollars for a cable network to give us ESPN right. when we can pay a small amount for one of the apps we can have in our Roku right. to get those same things, as well as you know my father who's in his mid sixties. That's been his life. He watched Sports Hunter every morning for breakfast, the re- the reviews, you know, he, he loved that. That was his thing. Right. Um, but now he's looking at us saying, you don't have a $200 cable bill. Like how do you get ESPN? Yeah. Well, it's just easy. Right. So right. he's just making the switch. And I also think too, with like ESPN zone app, you can follow your sports right. people who you want for free so right. you don't have to watch these commentators and you have to sit through all the bull you know right
0: and you don't have to pay like you're saying 10 or 15 dollars a month for for that you can it, let let if you're if you're a basketball fan you have all sorts of other ways that you can watch the games that you want and you, you don't need to go through espn no I, I i think you're i think you're right there is a generational thing now aaron um Okay, because I'm a little bit older than you are. Maybe I'm a lot older than you are. I mean, I remember <laughs> when MTV started. And you know, MTV used to be sure. music videos, and, and that was the thing. And then then they decided, okay, you know, the people that were into music videos, that they kind of aged out. And so now, I mean, you don't see music videos on MTV anymore. It's just, no. it's
1: changed.
5: No. And I think in my age, kind of referring to that, it was PRL. Total Recall Live, right? And it was more of like showing the videos, but really it was more about the celebrities who were on and all of that. So it turned more towards a communicative way of showing off the celebrities. Which this is the same thing for SportsCenter, Center, which has really changed their model of just showing sports.
0: Right? No, I. You're, you're, you're exactly right, and and this is and the problem that ESPN has is um, so Hondo, you're saying Total Request Live, TRL. That's what it is, Total Request Live. Yeah, but but I mean again, MTV is one of the classic examples. When, when MTV first started, the '80s probably, you know, you had you know you had okay, it, it was all the music videos, and it was the hottest thing in the world. And then people were able to get that 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 content elsewhere. You had the explosion of you know Al Gore inventing the internet, and then people. I mean, nowadays with with like YouTube, if you want to, if I want to see David Allen Coe, you know singing a particular song i go i do the search david allen coe and you know you put in the song and then you get like six youtube videos of him singing that song you don't need to you don't need to watch a, a channel now i understand maybe for some new music or something like that but it, but in general you know you don't need to watch you don't need to tune into that channel to get that information it's the way and like we were talking about earlier kind of bringing this all around a lot of the problems that the newspapers had. It's not that people don't necessarily want the content. It's just that they don't want to wait for the way it is being delivered. Look, even in my industry, that's an issue that we wrestle with from time to time. I remember there was something a couple weeks ago, and I don't know, it was a breaking news story, and I had been mentioning it, literally. I had been mentioning it every 12 minutes, I, I think, you know, coming into or out of breaks. I had been mentioning the thing, and then – you know, I get some nasty email from somebody saying, well, you know, you you know, you didn't I, I just tuned in the radio and I had to wait like ten minutes to hear about this. Well, okay. You know, it you know, people want what they want when they want it, and they want it in the fashion of when they want it. And I, I think that's what's hitting ESPN right now. It's like, all right, you can get the highlights somewhere else, you can get the live coverage somewhere else. Why do we want to pay ten or twelve or fifteen dollars a month for this? And so now ESPN is in the process of changing. What they're doing is they're alienating a lot of us loyal subscribers, the people who've watched it for the years, because it's not the ESPN that we grew up with, it's not the ESPN we want, and I'm not sure they can move far enough in the other direction to, you know, deal with to, to bring in that new generation. That's the problem again, newspapers have had. I think you're seeing it play out in things like ESPN. Where will it go? I don't know. But don't be surprised if don't be surprised if if more people end up leaving and the ESPN that was the giant gorilla in the room when it came to sports entertainment for years and years, don't be surprised if that changes dramatically.